Hello and welcome to the Consistency Project with E.C. Sinkowski. My name is Patrick Cummings and every episode I have the distinct privilege of presenting E.C. with a question on subject matters that range from nutrition to fitness to the choices we can all make to live a healthier, more functional life. By exploring both the principles at play and the actions worth carrying out as a result, we aim to get you thinking, get you moving, and get you taking more consistent steps toward optimizing your well-being. And usually this is the part of the episode where I ask EC how she's doing, but EC is not here. I am all by myself here to introduce a new format to the show that we're going to be experimenting with going forward. It's a Q&A episode. We're calling it Quick Bites. A few months ago, we jumped on a live stream with a handful of listeners, uh, answered some questions, answered your questions as it relates to all of the subjects that we talk about here on the show. And EC was able to take, I think, seven or eight questions um, from the group. So that's what we've got today. I hope you enjoy. If you would like to submit a question for a future Quick Bite, make sure that you are on the Optimize Me Nutrition newsletter list. EC will send out a call for questions. And we are going to do, I think, another live another live episode in December. So do make sure that you are on the newsletter before that so that you can not only get your questions submitted, but also so that you can attend and ask follow-up questions and chat with us as you see fit. All right, let's get into the episode. First question we've got is from Kelly. The question is, I'm wondering if you have a calorie limit calculation. Yeah. Yeah, this is a super, super common question, right? Um, one of our the most common goals that people have with nutrition is weight loss. And as you know, from listening to the Consistency Project, that weight loss requires you to eat less calories than you currently are. And so inevitably, we get that question of, well, how many calories do I need then, right? And yeah. I think there's so many different calculators out there. I think you know, there's a lot of different health coaches, including myself. There's a lot of different websites that provide this number for you such that it becomes this idea that it should be this simple calculation where just, you see, you know, just tell me how much, um, how many calories to eat. And I, I think there's two really points that I want to bring up about those calculations. And, and the first one, I believe we tackled in the body composition episode of the podcast, but just to touch on it again, with all of these calculators, they're just an estimate right? The calculators are, are pretty good at estimating based on your age and your sex. They're less good at estimating the activity component of your calories, mm. how many calories mm. you burn in exercise, how many calories you burn moving around the house, all of that stuff. And, and this isn't putting those calculators down. It's, it's just a very hard calculation to do. And so this activity component becomes quite variable. And so when you get this number back from me, from a website, ultimately, you're going to have to put that number into practice and tweak it going from there. So that's the first issue. Even if I were to say, here's how you calculate your calories, whether it's from me or anyone else, it's a starting point. It's, it's ultimately still has to be, to be road tested. So that's the first issue. The second issue is, um, you know, when people ask me how many calories should I be eating? One of the things that I'd kind of would like to counter is, is how many calories are you eating now? Mm. And, and overwhelmingly, people aren't typically able to answer that with a high level of um, precision. And I think this is important for two reasons. The, the first is that counting your calories and or even macros, whichever one you want to do, while it's very good and efficient for weight loss, it's 
it's hard. There, there's a huge dropout rate of that practice, right? Um, people have a hard time adhering to doing doing that. So what good is me telling you that you should eat 2000 calories if you're not currently even weighing and measuring your food, if you don't currently have that practice as part of your daily life? Now, you might be thinking, well, you see, that's the whole point is that now that you tell me this number, now I'm going to instill that, you know, now I will follow it. I think there's still a problem there as well. Let's say that the calculator tells you that you should be eating 2,000 calories, but your day-to-day -day calories have you closer to 3,000. Knowing that where you should be ultimately might not be where you should start because that might be too big of a deficit to sustain it. Like maybe you should be closer to 2,000 at your ideal weight, but gosh, you're going to be so hungry that you're going to fall off this thing in one or two days. And so that's why I also don't love these calculators is they might be kind of, I don't want to say setting up for failure, but being a little bit too aggressive out of the gates where when we know weight loss is such a long-term game that I, I got to have you sticking to the program for, for long enough. And so this is kind of, I guess, a plug for my masterclass, but this is ultimately what we do in my masterclass is really focus on starting where you are and, and without going into too much detail, because I'm probably getting <laughs> close on my timeline here. Um, what we want to do is observe what you're eating right now, like weigh and measure every single thing that you're eating right now. Get a total number of calories that you're eating on average. And then if you want to lose weight, you're going to have to reduce that. Maybe it's by about 10%. It's going to come from carbs and fat, not the protein. And, and that's the process of how to really get after this weight loss. Um, so yeah, that's how I would suggest going about it. Um, and I think, you know, unfortunately people kind of want that number right away, right? They're like, well, just tell me the number now. I don't want to go through this week long observation process to figure out what, what the number should be. And I would argue that if you're not willing to go through that process to get a number that is more accurate and more sustainable to you, that you're not really that interested in going through the weight loss process, which is going to be substantially mm. longer than that. Mm. Yeah. So that, that's just, how I do it. Have you discovered any shortcuts for folks who are maybe are really reticent to do the calorie counting shortcuts, not, not to skip it all together and not to say, Oh, that doesn't matter. and doesn't count. Um, but that gets them a little bit closer to, or gets them away from whatever they think they don't like doing about counting calories. Is there any sort of heuristics or any sort of, um, ways to meet, maybe meet them in the middle? Mm. You mean like a shorthand way to kind of figure out quantity? <laughs> Yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. A, a way that at least bridges that gap between, okay, the, it does matter the number of calories, but mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's really hard for me to, to count every single thing totally. um, throughout the day. Yeah. I mean, some of this is, is the magic or my method to the madness behind the 800 gram challenge and lazy macros. What mm -hmm. points can I yep. pick in the diet to track that don't make me track everything, but get me pretty close. We can yep. also reverse engineer lazy macros though. We can do something that I've kind of nicknamed, but haven't really discussed that much, like track the crap in that maybe I track <laughs> the total number of calories that I can have of these processed goodies that we tend to overeat. Maybe that's like 300, 500 calories a day. And I make sure that I always stay below that. So there mm -hmm. can be ways that we estimate it. It's just that, um, all of those methods, as much as I love the 800 gram challenge and lazy macros are still never going to be as comprehensive of tracking the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Track the crap. I, I think that's, that's <laughs> it's a new diet name. <laughs> okay. Um, second question we've got from Diane. I train early in the morning and now that I'm back at work or, or rather I train early in the morning now that I'm back at work. Uh, so I don't eat before, but I do drink BCAAs intra and post-workout. 
So would that take me out of a fasting window? I usually don't actually eat anything until 12 to 14 hours after I've had dinner. But I've heard even a few calories from a drink can take you out of a fasted state. Yeah. Um, fasting <laughs> and mm -hmm. fasted workouts. Um, yeah. This and, is a and maybe it might be worth just uh, explaining what BCAAs are as well. Thank you. I I'm not even totally clear on what they are. Yeah, branch chain amino acids. So they're essential types of amino acids that people often use around workouts um, for various reasons, largely because they're purported to have a strong influence on muscle protein synthesis or building muscle. But um, yeah, I mean, her question sort of leaves me with my question of, of why, you know, why is she mm. fasting for these workouts? Because I think fasting gets talked about sort of generally and it gets talked about for all these different things. And so it's like, again, we have to understand which thing does she want? You know, are mm. we looking at this for, for the purported health benefits of insulin sensitivity, hormonal type response? Are we looking at fasting for more of a weight loss thing? Like we've talked about fat burning concept before, um, are we looking at this from a performance angle? Like there's even people who say or believe that, you know, more of a fat based diet will help you with performance outcomes. And so it, it's helpful to know what somebody really wants from fasting to kind of be able to tease out all of that. But regardless of being able to tease that out specifically, I think it's important to point out that health, weight, and even performance improvements are not exclusive to fasting. Um, I, I think fasting has been kind of thrown out there as like, yes, it will fix all of the things. When yeah. I, I, we can do it without necessarily doing fasting. And we, we will probably have to spend a whole podcast. I certainly can't untangle all of that um, within five minutes to understand why fasting isn't necessarily the answer, although it can help in certain circumstances. So I actually did have a little bit of back and forth with Diane to try to figure out a little bit more of why she's going down this, this route. Mm. And um, it, it sounded a little bit like just the logistics of the timing of her workout. You know, you know she's one of these 5 a.m. crew type people. And I think putting aside kind of hormonal response and, you know, what's happening from the cellular level in terms of energy production, I think we have some real logistics to think about for my morning a.m. crew that... If you work out at 5 or 5.30 a.m., I'm, I'm doubting that you're willing to get up at 4 to 4.30 a.m. to have a real breakfast um, before that workout. And so sometimes you're just doing fasted workouts because you're just not going to get in a full meal. And, and from that standpoint, sure, fine enough. I get it. If that's when you can fit in a workout and you're not eating before, okay. Um, now, to get to her question specifically, does this take me out of the fasting window? Technically, it does. Anything with cal calories is going to take you out of the fasting window. I think the more important follow-up question there is, does it matter? Um, and I'm going to stick with the kind of performance exercise angle here because she's talking about doing a workout. So I'm going to kind of drop the health hormonal stuff here um, and, and focus more on that exercise angle. The first one, from a performance standpoint, does fasting actually help my performance? I would encourage people to do their workouts fast or fed that gives them the best performance. So mm. like base your fueling for your workouts on how well you perform in the workouts. If fasting makes you bonk or you feel faint or you just don't have enough energy, don't fast. <laughs> to me, it, it's sort of like shooting yourself in the foot, right? You've set aside this time to work out and now you can't even perform during the workout. When we look at performance and making performance gains, we have to 
train hard. Like we can't just show up at the gym and say, well, I was at the gym for a certain period of time. It actually matters what we do with that hour, right? So the last thing I'd want somebody to do is to try to get performance gains with a diet kind of protocol that um, makes them feel like they don't have a ton of energy. Mm-hmm. And and even we just had the CrossFit Games recently, right? With with Matt and Tia, I can guarantee you they were not trying to hit a certain number of hours of like not eating or like flirting on this edge of like not eating, <laughs> having enough energy to go out and compete, right? Um, and so I think that's an important thing to think in mind. Don't don't fast because you think it's or you've heard it's good for performance. What actually happens to you, you know? And go based on that to determine whether or not you're going to fast. Make the workout count. Um, the second point that I wanted to touch on and relative to this exercise thing, and it's really confusing because people will talk about fasted workouts for fat loss. And I really think they're focusing on the wrong thing. When, when you focus on fasted workouts for fat loss, you're focusing on what happens for one hour of the day not the 24 that matters, right? But you might burn more in this one hour of this workout window, but it might not matter if you eat a lot for the rest of the hours that you're awake. And we talked about this in the low carb, low fat podcast. We went through kind of a hefty example with some real life numbers. Um, So check that out if you want a more detailed example. But the oversimplification here is, this is a super simple, like not exact, you know, (laughs) example, but I want to use it just for demonstration purposes. Let's say I do a fasted workout and in that fasted workout, I burn 30 grams of fat. And let's say if I were to do it fed, I only burn 15 grams of fat. That might not matter if I end up eating 150 grams of fat that day when I only need 90, right? I'm still in this mode of fat gain. And so what I ha- what I see happen is that people focus on the workout and what's happening specifically there and not necessarily their intake across the course of the day. And so again, our weight changes don't come down to hours of adherence. They come down to kind of this caloric balance and macronutrient distribution. And, and that's what kind of pains me about fasting. It can work, but I think people are focusing on a, kind of a degree away from where they have the most control. Like let's focus on where we have the most control. And if it's for weight loss, it's actually going to be looking at quantity. And so kind of summing that up for um, Diane is I would really kind of question her of like, hey, let's make this performance matter when you're working out. And if some BCAAs just help you kind of feel like you have a little bit of energy versus totally fasted, great. Maybe it's half a shake, maybe it's half a banana, but really think about the performance. Cause I think that's where she's going to get the benefit that she wants from both a, a fat loss perspective, as well as, um, kind of performance perspective. Yeah. Mm. And would you recommend when, when trying to figure that out? Cause I think, I think that one of the interesting things in there is the idea of we'll figure out what's actually going to work for you in the specific, in your workout. Right. So do you, would you recommend, you know, Diane or anybody else who's, who's trying to figure out the right balance here, do a week of workouts where you have some amount of calories mm. prior Do a week of workouts where you do the fasted idea. Right. And you know, with or without BCAs. And, and then how do you, how would you recommend they figure out, and maybe it's just like, I felt better, but, but how would you help them figure out where they were going to be able to optimize the actual performance work at, given that, as you said, that's really what you're in for and that the, that there's, there's so much value in that. How do you yep. get that? How, how can you help them build a bit more of a tangible uh, understanding of which is better for me? Yeah. Yeah, I love your approach. It's going to have to be something systematic like that. And ideally, they do it for a long enough time across a long enough variation of workouts, especially if we're talking to a CrossFit crowd where some mornings you're back squatting and some mornings you're running, right? And, yeah. and that's really what it takes. And, and, it's, and you 
there's some other factors at play as well. How well did you sleep the night before? How stressed out are you at job? And so that's why looking at something across a period of days and time is really going to be the best. And that, yeah, I mean, if you just sort of feel like when I fast across these 10 workouts, you know, eight of them, I just felt like I didn't have any energy or I got a a number substantially different from where I normally would or compared to the people that I'm normally, you know, keep up to. Mm -hmm. I think that's your answer. You know, we can't do fully controlled scientific everything, but I think those are pretty good indications. Yeah. 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 Really good. Cool. Next question is from Laura. She asks, can you talk to us about caffeine? Optimal daily dose limits, use, can too much be a negative thing, et cetera, et cetera. And as you answer, I'm going to take a sip of coffee. (laughs) I've already had two cups. Um, (laughs) Caffeine. Yeah, it's a known performance enhancement drug. It's actually one of the the supplements or pre-workouts that I would recommend playing with. You know, what caffeine gives us is a heightened sense of awareness, right? It also increases our pain threshold. We're able to kind of not perceive pain to be as painful. Mm. <laughs> and so this is this is kind of why it's it's good for performance. You know, maybe you have a better reaction time or maybe you can kind of endure endure the intensity for longer. Um now what the FDA recommends in terms of caffeine doses is about 400 milligrams a day and you can have that at much and not necessarily have any negative health effects even in the long term. This is hard to say what that shakes out to for your cup of coffee um, because coffee varies widely based on mm-hmm. the type of bean, uh, how it's roasted, how you brew it. So this is super, super general, but a cup or about one espresso shot, super general is about 100 milligrams of caffeine. So we're looking at something on the order of four cups a day or four so- shots of espresso, of course, a cup being eight ounces, not <laughs> 32 ounces. Um, but so that would be kind of what would be considered a normal, fine enough amount. Now, if you're looking to use caffeine for this performance benefit, besides just sort of the morning cup of joe, uh, the, the dose that you would want to play around with is something like two to three milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight. And so if somebody's 150 pounds, <clears throat> That's about 70 kilos, roughly. So we're looking at 140 to 200-ish milligrams of caffeine. We're talking about one or two cups of coffee equivalent, right? Mm -hmm. And then caffeine peaks about 30 to 60 minutes after you take it. Of course, variation person to person. So this means that if you're really looking at it from a pre-workout standpoint, that you're going to want to get in that caffeine about a half hour before and maybe even play with some of the timing around there. The super key part about doing this from a performance standpoint is that you test it out, right? The last thing you want to do is kind of show up on game day, have two cups of coffee and end up with palpitations and not not a good performance, right? So you got to play around with it. Not that I've ever done that. (laughs) I have a story about that, but I can't, not now. (laughs) The crash bees, do you remember those in Boston? Of course I do. Oh yeah, yeah. I did an eight hour energy shot, but anyway... (laughs) That's another podcast. Um, Now, how like part of this variation for how caffeine affects us is depending on how fast you metabolize it, which just means how quickly you break it down. So if you break it down really quickly, you don't feel the effects for very long. You can handle a higher dose. If you don't break it down quickly, uh, you feel the effects a lot that you're going to be somebody who's more jittery with even a smaller dose. Uh, And there's a big range in this. It could be 
a couple hours or it could be several hours to really break down, you know, just a cup of coffee. And I think we all know this in real life. Like there's probably somebody, you know, who can have the coffee and go right to bed. And there's other people who can't have it after lunch. And then even other people who are just like, oh my gosh, more than one cup and I'm too jittery. Right. So the end result of all of that is to tell you, yeah, caffeine, probably (laughs) I'd recommend to stay within the FDA recommendation, less 400 milligrams or less per day. Um, and, and think about how you feel with it, really. Like, are you more energized and focused, or is it this like jittery, heart racing, um, you know, GI distress? If you're more the latter, then you probably should cut back on on the caffeine. And I think the one other thing to think about would be sleep. That mm-hmm. if you don't have great sleep, are you doing kind of that afternoon pick me up? Are you kind of doing that latte, you know, the three p.m. latte? And to think about cutting back there as well, even if you're in the 400 milligrams a day, maybe the timing is a little bit off that is now starting to affect some other things. We've talked about detoxes before. I think it was the first episode mm-hmm. we did. Have is there any validity in your mind? Any value in? a week, two week kind of caffeine detox, get it out of your system, uh, avoid it entirely. Um, anything, any of any value there, or is it better as we've talked about a lot is just to figure out what the, the, the appropriate dose is that you can sustain that you can be consistent at and just settle there. I think, you know, it is, it is a drug, so there's going to be some tolerance to it. There's going to be some getting used to it. So from that perspective, I think it's hard to objectively evaluate how it's affecting you if you never go off of it. Right. Um, and so so I think there is a value now, I think a week actually is a little bit short because it's going to take a few Mm. days to get through the head, the headaches. And if you're at the higher end, I would definitely kind of wean yourself down versus going cold Turkey. The headaches will be real. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I think there is some value there and that maybe you can recalibrate at a slightly lower dose, or maybe it's affecting your sleep more than you think. And you don't really know Mm. until you start playing around with, with decreasing that. Got it. Next question. Greg asks, what is the deal? <laughs> also Jerry Seinfeld asks, yeah. what is the deal with bread, gl- uh, grains, and gluten? I've read paleo literature and it seems to make sense to me, but is bread a true quote unquote real whole food? And is gluten as evil as it is sometimes made out to be? Yeah. I think I think this question really has two concepts in it. The one of grains just generally, and then that gluten containing grains. Um, This actually feeds in well to the next question. So I'm going to spend probably a little bit more time on this question because the next one will be a kind of a short follow-up to it. I will allow it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, But I, I think what's really important before we get down into the grains discussion is is what are we calling grains? You know, um, when I, when I think about grains, I think rice, I think quinoa, I think buckwheat, I think even whole wheat bread, right? Things that don't really have a ton of flavor. Maybe we put chili on something like that. And it's really important to make this distinction because this is not the same thing as products made with whole grains, right? If you take whole grains and you mix them with a bunch of sugar and fat, we don't have grains anymore. We have processed foods. And this is a lot of what Mm. we kind of have in our marketing and kind of processed food environment that, you know, cereals mixed with sugar and marshmallows made with whole grains. Those aren't whole grains anymore. Um, So to be clear, when I talk about grains, I mean, rice, quinoa, all of that stuff. And they can be great additions to the diet. And we went through an example of this in the USDA podcast that came out most recently. But 
The problem, I think, with some of all of this focus on eliminating all of these foods, grains, dairy, which we're also going to get to and all that stuff, is, is we have to remember that we're, we have to eat something. <laughs> you know, and if somebody needs 2,500 calories a day, which is kind of the average for males, although people that are active are going to be closer to that or higher, that, you know, how do you get there, right? How do you get to 2,500 calories? Because it's not going to happen just on, on broccoli and bananas. And so you're going to have to have some protein. You're going to have to have some fat and, and yes, even some grains. And so grains do offer not only just some calories, we get some fiber from them. We also get some micronutrients. Now, the reason why grains have kind of been put on this, you know, relative scale that's worse than fruits and veggies is because they have more calories and less micronutrients relative to fruits and veggies. That's kind of why they've been vilified. But we have to remember this is all relative. They're still better in terms of they have fewer calories and more micronutrients than the ice cream, the sugary cereals, all of that stuff. So if you're eating a good amount of fruits and veggies, plus a good amount of whole food protein, whole grains can be a really great way to round out your calories and nutrients. And I'm saying round out the diet. I'm not saying, you know, switch to a grain diet. <laughs> so that's kind of the answer for grains. Like what kind of grains are we talking about? And yes, for sure, there's a place for them within a mixed whole food varied diet. Gluten. <laughs> Gluten is a protein found in wheat and there's a similar protein found in um, rye and barley. And so we think about grains as being mostly carbs and they are, but they do have some protein and some of that protein in wheat, for example, is gluten. Now, Gluten is a problem for people that have celiac disease. It can start causing damage to the, it's an autoimmune disease that starts to cause damage to the small intestine. We don't absorb nutrients, not good. Celiac disease has about a prevalence, it depends on which kind of test you use to diagnose celiac, but it has a prevalence of about 1% of the population. So about one in 100. So it's, it's not that common, but people who have celiac definitely 100% should avoid gluten. Um, and they should be properly diagnosed, right? Like this shouldn't be this thing that I read this blog about gluten and now I, I have celiac, right? You got to go through the tests and, and be properly diagnosed. And I would also suggest that if people who have autoimmunity in their family is to consider if celiac is part of that, because celiac tends to cluster with auto other autoimmune conditions. Like if you have celiac, you're more likely to have hypothyroid um, Hashimoto's or uh, MS, et cetera. So that's, that's something to think about. But generally, by and large, it's, it's, it's not super common. We also have to tackle, though, this issue of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Um, this is interesting. So the person is sensitive to gluten, meaning they have symptoms that um, that come about when they have gluten, but they have been diagnosed not to be celiac. So that's why it's non-gluten celiac sensitivity. And what's, what's hard about non-celiac gluten sensitivity is that there's no clear way to diagnose it. It's a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning... Mm. People go, uh, doctors go through tests to say like, okay, well, you don't have this marker for celiac. You don't have this marker for celiac. Okay. You don't, you know, necessarily have this marker for IBS, which might have the same signs and symptoms. Okay. I guess you have non-gluten celiac sensitivity. That's not ideal for a true condition. You'd have a way to positively identify it. Right. Um, and this is not to say that these people don't have very real signs and symptoms. They do. 
it's just that we want to make sure that we have the understanding of the disease correctly so that it can be properly treated, that we don't want to just assume that it's gluten when, in, in fact, it might be something else because then we're, we're just going down the wrong path. And what we find is that some of these people who have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, when they're blind tested, meaning when they're given gluten without them knowing, all of the signs and symptoms don't always reappear. <laughs> it's not mm. consistent that way. So it, it's hard to understand if it's truly the gluten or something else is at play. In fact, it could be a nocebo effect. We've talked about a placebo effect. A nocebo effect yeah. is the person believes the food will negatively harm them. And this is some of the problem with all of the fear mongering is that it causes some of these unnecessary neuroses. But the prevalence of this non-celiac gluten sensitivity looks to be higher, although this, this mess of being able to diagnose it, it is coming it is part of the problem. So it's hard to say it might be upwards of 10%, but that might be overestimating it. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's just, it's hard to say. It's hard to say how many people are truly affected by gluten specifically. So where does that leave you? <laughs> well, I think something to keep in mind is I, I do think it's been overvilified. If we look at the prevalence for celiac, I do think that, you know, we've been eating wheat for 10,000 years and that gluten-free diets have grown exponentially in the last 10. It's unlikely that they're kind of, you know, that we've just now realized in the last 10 years that this is truly a problem for all of these people. But I think, yeah, if you have definite signs and symptoms associated with it, that's a great indication that maybe you should look further, work with a doctor to get diagnosed or see what those signs and symptoms are. Um, but that, that necessarily just cause you read a blog that people should be avoiding gluten, that it might not be as problematic as it's been made out to be. Yeah. Mm. Um, just, just, to, so that I make sure I'm hearing you, uh, correctly. Are you saying that if, um, you know, cause obviously a lot of people will say, well, I, I want to lose some weight. So I'm going to, I'm going to cut out gluten, right? Cause that's clearly the devil. Are you saying, or are you suggesting or, or advising that unless you're actually experiencing symptoms of celiac disease, then it's probably not particularly useful, at least it's not a magic bullet to wholesale, get rid of gluten, get rid of whole grains. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's never any harm of people kind of trying. Um, I don't actually want to say there's never any harm. There's generally not harm when people do elimination diets, like a removing gluten and figuring out on their own how it affects them. I mm. think we have to be careful though, with some of the self-experimentation um, to say that this is the answer, that when people remove gluten from their diet, for example, they may end up eating less processed foods. They may end up eating more fruits and veggies. So to say that, well, I did a gluten elimination diet and I know for that reason I am hypersensitive to gluten. That's not true. That's a little bit incorrect. There's some confounding factors there that we can't just say, oh, it's the gluten. That doesn't mean that I'm encouraging you to go back to gluten, that yeah, continue to eat your fruits and veggies. But I think we just have to be careful that maybe we vilify, we've over vilified gluten when there might be other factors at play. Maybe removing mm. gluten from the diet just reduced your calories and you reduced inflammation that way, right? So yep. we just have to be very careful about saying, you know, especially once you're getting into the, the realm of where doctors would be diagnosing <laughs> and trying to do that on your own which I think we've talked about. But sure, if, if people want to try a gluten-removed diet and they don't have signs and symptoms, yeah, I mean, then you just have to make sure that you're continuing to get enough nutrients from the other whole food choices that you do make, right? It can't be the gluten-free diet of um, peeps as much as I love them. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay, so you alluded to the next question. So we're going to dive into that from Jess. Yeah. Can you talk about your thoughts on oats as a source of carbs, assuming they are organic and glyphosate-free? I don't know if I'm glyphosate, free. Yep. I'm not 
glyphosate, uh, are they a good source of nutrients? I've been told that the, the protein is so similar, similar to gluten that if I have a gluten allergy, I shouldn't even uh, have gluten-free oats. Yeah. Yeah. So there has been this idea that uh, the protein fraction in oats is um, very similar to gluten and therefore you should avoid them. From what I can see in the research, including research looking at clinical and observational studies, is that there's no evidence that gluten-free oats cause any blood marker changes in terms of, let's say, antibodies or, let's say, um, signs and symptoms from the person or damage to the cell wall. The main concern, I think, with oats are whether or not they are truly gluten-free. I'm mm -hmm. sure this person, because they have gluten-free already in their diet, I'm sure they're aware of cross-contamination. When you have different food processing um, you know, plants and places where they bulk and pack stuff, that there can be contamination with other products. And I think that's going to be the biggest thing to look out for for people that need to be gluten-free with oats, you know, um, find a brand that is recommended by, you know, either your doctor or a celiac organization or, or something like that. So it, it's truly gluten-free as a carb source. I, I think I generally handled that, um, in the grains question, meaning it can be a way to round out the diet. Um, oats definitely have a little bit more, um, micronutrients than let's say rice. So from that standpoint, it's quote, better. But again, you know, relative to the fruits and veggies, I wouldn't want somebody shifting to oats only over fruits and veggies because the micronutrients won't, won't be as good. So I think it can be a nice mm -hmm. carb source to round out the diet for sure. Got See, it. that one was shorter. <laughs> that was the, yeah, you just needed a long one previously. To get, to many get minutes before that. Okay. Next question is from Mark. How about dairy? Seems like there's so much conflicting information about whether it is healthy or not. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm glad that I, I grouped this one with the grains one because, you know, we're going to have a little bit of a similar answer here. And, and the first thing I don't have to spend much time with is, but the same idea of like, how are we, what are we calling dairy, right? When I think about dairy, it's it's milk, it's plain yogurt, it's cheese, it's butter. It's not, uh, I don't know, pizza, ice cream, butter on popcorn, right? So yep. we're talking about dairy as dairy, not products made with dairy. And in, in that way, again, it can round out the diet. Um, one of the big issues with dairy for people is lactose intolerance and intolerance. When we use that word intolerance, it's not to be confused with allergy or hypersensitivity, which actually have specific definitions mm. in terms of the immunology. And unfortunately those words kind of get thrown around as though yeah. they are the same thing. And they're really not. Intolerance doesn't have an immune response. Um, intolerance doesn't have inflammation associated with it. Intolerance is like the inability for you to digest and absorb that, that lactose. And so when you don't digest and absorb the lactose in the small intestine, it continues through your GI tract to the colon. And that's where your microbiota, where you have all these bacteria, they now have this source of lactose, which should have been absorbed upstream. And so they end up fermenting it, which is the way they make energy, these, this microbiota. And guess what they produce? Gas. In addition to that, having that extra sugar in your colon also draws water into the colon. There's too much concentration there of sugar. So now we have bloating, potentially diarrhea. These are the things that people tend to have associated with milk or dairy consumption or this increase in GI um, distress. And the good news there is it's not necessarily for most cases when you have these symptoms and immune or inflammation process, it's just more of a lack of digestion and absorption. Um, and, and what's really going on there is 
is you're not able to digest and absorb the lactose, which is the carb carbohydrate fraction or the sugar fraction in milk, because you've lost um, the production of the enzyme lactase. And, and this dramatically decreases in everybody once they are past, I don't know, I think it's like three years old, it cuts off dramatically. Mm. But depending on kind of your ethnicity and your heritage, it drops off even more, where people who have um, Northern European descent tend to be able to, or they tend to produce more of this enzyme than people, let's say, from Asia descent, Asian descent, or African descent, or Native American descent. And so your ability to digest dairy is going to depend how much this lactase persistence you have, how much of this enzyme stays around that drops off after being um, an infant or a small child. Um, generally people can consume up to about 12 grams of lactose without much signs and symptoms. And this would include for people that don't have a ton of lactase around that might look like a cup of milk might even be slightly higher if you can, if you consume it with other foods, but probably won't be, you know, like a full cheese pizza type of thing. Um, so that, that's kind of the main issue that people have with dairy. And I think it's that a lot of people have more of an intolerance thing than necessarily, you know, a hypersensitivity or an allergy to an allergy you would already know already because that might mm. be anaphylactic shock. The one other thing I want to touch on with dairy that makes dairy so confusing is that dairy has a, a lot of products where the macronutrients change, meaning when you look at something more like a milk or a yogurt, you've got protein, carbohydrate, and then various levels of fat, depending on which kind you buy, whole milk, you know, 2% milk. Then you've got cheese, which doesn't really have much carbs. That's more of a protein fat thing. Then you have butter, which is just a fat thing. And so this is what makes it hard when you're thinking about fitting dairy into your diet is the macronutrients are changing. And so depending on if you maybe need more carb or maybe if you need more protein or maybe you need less fat, you might end up choosing different dairy sources more based on that than, than necessarily something else. And so where does that leave you with dairy? Uh, well, <laughs> it can be part of a whole food mixed diet, most likely. And then if you have a lot of GI symptoms with it, that it might be some lactose intolerance. But of course, anything that's super persistent or clearly out of the ordinary, always go to a doctor to get that uh, diagnosed or checked out. Mm -hmm. Great. Last question we've got. Yeah. Jennifer asked, so is there a way to consume black beans and it not hurt your weight loss goal? Yeah. Yeah. Eat them. It's not going to hurt your weight loss goal. That's that's the short <laughs> answer. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to be glib with that. I think I think beans have been maligned, kind of like fruit. You know, people think about beans as being really carb heavy, and they are relative to spinach, um, but not again relative to those processed foods. Not re relative to chips or brownies or something like that. And in reality, I just don't see that people are eating too many of them. And, you know, th this happens every single time I take a masterclass group through kind of their diet analysis. It's, it's never the beans. I've, I've yet to mm -hmm. work with anybody who's overeating beans. But I want to tackle a couple things because I think I've kind of answered that quantity thing before. Um, and, I, and I do think that, you know, somebody might have beans in their diet and they might be gaining weight. Um, one of the things to think about is, first of all, what are you eating with the beans, right? Like if this is I have beans when I go to Chipotle and get also get the chips, right? Like are beans kind of associated with other foods that you're, that you're overeating or some type of nacho or dip spread or something like that. Um, that would be one thing that I would consider. The other thing is beans are filling. Um, and this is, this is a positive of them. And this is also a positive of fruits and vegetables, but beans have that fiber, which really slows how, kind of how fast the food moves out of your stomach. And this means that you feel fuller longer. And what we've, what we've come to do is we come to associate um, feelings of fullness 
with number of calories. And that's not always true. Fruits and veggies are a great example. And I'll put beans in that same bunch. If you can feel mm. full, but actually have eaten less calories than say a brownie or, or some ice cream. So it, that just because maybe you feel f- more full when you have beans or wow, I'm so stuffed that, that you might not actually be in terms of caloric balance. And so this is why, um, you know, I love people to weigh and measure their food for at least a period of time. You don't even have to necessarily do macros, maybe just look at total calories for a little bit. Because when you track on where every single thing is coming from, I, I think you're probably going to find out that um, your your beans aren't really the part that's that's causing too many calories, right? It might be like mm. 130 calories out of the 2000, but it's not like the 500 or whatever from, from the chocolate and the popcorn type stuff. Yeah. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. And just a reminder that if you want to have your questions answered, future iteration of Quick Bites, make sure you are on the Optimize Me newsletter. We will leave a link to it in the show notes. Thank you so much for your ratings, your reviews, and for sharing with your friends. And we will be back shortly for another episode of The Consistency Project. Hi, all. EC here. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Thank you as well for all the support for the five-star ratings and the reviews and for telling your friends or family about the podcast that really does help the podcast grow. And if you want to get the most recent info from me and be up to date on all of my content, the best place for that is my email list. So you can subscribe at optimizemenutrition.com slash email. I send out emails weekly-ish, <laughs> and that's also the best place to get your question in the queue for Quick Bites episodes. So again, that's optimizemenutrition.com slash email, and there's also a link in the show notes.